Welcome to the Seeing Deep Podcast, where we see deep in a shallow world by exploring our surrounding culture through a biblical lens. All this month, we are discussing seeing God's gifts to us during the Christmas season and all year through. We can take things for granted, but if we take for granted God's gifts, we live less abundant lives. Here with me today is David Fienzi to help us explore and discuss his latest book, Here Today, Compassion and Grace in the Parables of Jesus. David has a passion for teaching and preaching the Bible and for thinking about and articulating theological ideas. After graduating from Duke University with a PhD in New Testament and Second Temple Judaism, David Fienzi taught for seven years at Kentucky Christian University. He then served a two-year tenure in Tübingen, Germany, and served as a pastor for six years before resuming teaching at Kentucky Christian University. He has participated in seven archaeological excavations and surveys and has otherwise traveled widely in the Mediterranean area and the Middle East. Now semi-retired, David serves as a speaker and consultant for churches and colleges and is involved in several writing and research projects. David and his wife, Molly, have two daughters and three grandchildren. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Denise. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a joy. And I have to tell you, I'm just uh, really intrigued by the archaeological excavations and surveys that you've done. What Can you just share with us something briefly that really came and how God spoke to you during those? Yeah, so a survey is when you uh, walk along the surface. You're not allowed to dig into the soil, but you pick up things on the surface. And from that, it sort of tells you what was going on there thousands of years ago, an excavation, you start digging and you go down layer by layer. Uh, it's, it's sort of like going through a person's house. Let's say they've passed away and they invite you in for an estate sale or something, and you just kind of rummage through their stuff. It, it feels like you're intruding a little bit, but it's intriguing as well because you get to see what they stood for, what, what things mattered to them. Uh, in terms of what they gathered. So when you're doing archaeology, you're doing that. You're intruding on people's lives uh, as they lived them thousands of years ago, and you're just kind of nosing around in their houses and other places. Uh, But at the same time, you're learning a great deal um, about the culture, and that enriches your biblical study. Uh, I haven't found any one object that just changed my view of the Bible. It's the accumulation of things that help you to appreciate how these people live, what they stood for, what they valued, what they uh, what they had to endure, what challenges they had. Uh, it makes me understand a little bit better, I hope, uh, how they would have heard the teachings of Jesus, the the letters, how they would have read the letters of Paul and so forth. So it's not any one find, but it's the it's the accumulation uh, of uh, small finds that begins to mold your understanding of the ancient world and the people that heard Jesus teach and preach, that read Paul's letters, and and that wrote the New Testament. Wow. Well, I imagine even in this book of yours that we're going to discuss today that it sort of frames a context for you where those scriptures come alive a little bit more. It's it's uh, more tangible, I would think. And so I, I look forward to just diving in here with you. The scripture for today's episode is taken from Mark 4, verse 9, and he said, He who has ears to hear... 
let him hear. David, why do you think it is so hard for us to hear and understand the parables today? Yes, excellent question. Um, And of course, it isn't just hard for us. Uh, There's a reason Jesus uh, gave that pronouncement. It was hard for those people (laughs) to hear and understand the parables. Uh, Of course, the first obstacle for us is time and culture. Uh, The Bible originally existed in different languages. None of the Bible was written in English. Uh, And even Jesus' parables were first uttered in the Aramaic language, then put into Greek, and now we're reading them in English. So there's the language, there's the culture. Uh, So a lot of things Jesus talks about, we think immediately we understand them, but there are cultural cues in there that we are not picking up uh, you know, immediately, <clears throat> which enrich the parable and sometimes even clarify it for us. So it's the, it's the obstacle of time and culture, I think, makes the somewhat difficult. But secondly, it's just the, the, the nature of parables. Parables have a kind of aha effect. Uh, when Jesus told them, I don't think a lot of the people at the time quite grasped them immediately. They they heard them as interesting stories, maybe even entertainment. I picture Jesus coming into villages, and he's the evening entertainment. And I don't think he told the parables as briefly as we have them narrated. These are summaries. I think some of these stories, like the parable of the prodigal son, for example, he may have spent a an hour or two telling that it's a fantastic story and you can really go mm. into detail. So they listened to the story and they thought, that's a pretty good story. Huh? But then later they're thinking about it. They, oh, hey, wait a minute. Now this might apply to me. <laughs> and some of them might've gotten upset and angry at him for that. Some of them might've, might've felt rebuked and repentant. Uh, so the parables have a kind of uh, delayed effect on us when we think about them and mold them over. And that's, that's the intention. They're like the Old Testament book of Proverbs, right? The, so the book of Proverbs throws out these proverbial sayings, and they're not readily comprehensible. We think they are, but you think and think. Like there's one, that, for example, uh, the, the horse is ready for the battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Um, that seems okay. Uh, seems like I can pick up, but then you think and think and think about that. Uh, how do I apply that? I'm not going to fight any battles, but so it's, that's what the parables are like. They're intended to have a delayed effect. And the more you mold them over, the more they seem to be applicable to your life. And Mm -hmm. as you go through the changes of your life, you know, the phases in, in age, uh, in your relationships and so forth, uh, you will see that the parables are like little gems that multifaceted. You can turn it and see it in one way when you're 25. When you're 45, you see it somewhat different way. Uh, they're almost like the psychologist's use of Rorschach tests, they, those ink blots that they show <laughs> patients, right? Mm-hmm. So the patients look at the blot and they're supposed to say what they remind them of. It looks like a bird or it looks like a cloud. But uh, depending on how they keep interpreting the ink blots, that tells something about themselves. And the parables are like that. Uh, we look at them in one phase of our lives, and they seem to have this application. But another phase, another. So you've got the two obstacles, the 
the ancient language and culture, which, you know, we can clear up. We can, we can explain that. And I try to do that in this book. But the aha moment is like yours. Uh, it's not mine. I can, I can point you to some things, but it's like what you, what you individually and what <clears throat> each generation uh, has to discover in these parables. Yes, and it's so true that the more time we spend with God's Word, the more we understand. I mean, I read the Bible every year, and there's always something new. I can even look at a verse that I've read I don't know how many times, but God still speaks something new, and that's just the power of His Word. Um, So I see that you chose 12 parables for your book. Why did you choose these specific 12 parables? Yeah, uh, so... There are, by my count, 50-some parables uh, in the four Gospels, depending on how you want to define a parable. I think I count 53. Others might have a few more, others a few less, but it's about that number. Some of the parables are one sentence. Uh, For example, in Matthew, you are the light of the world. That's uh, that's a whole parable right there. (laughs) You are the salt of the earth. Uh, and then some are really long, like the parable of the prodigal son. The longest parable in the Bible is that one. So why these 12? Well, some of them you just can't uh, avoid. These are the most famous parables. And those parables appealed to by the church for the last 2,000 years, most often, and rightly so. These are powerful stories. Jesus was a master storyteller. And even coming to us in their abbreviated form. They are just absolutely dynamite stories. Every detail was just amazing. So you can't uh, avoid the ones that the church has appealed to over and over again. But then there are others I put in there that I thought were most relevant, I think, to our age and to our time. So uh, I wanted it to be uh, a lesson book for a quarter, so three months, so that's about 13 Sundays or 13 Wednesdays or whenever, 13 Thursdays, whenever people meet for small groups or Sunday school. And so I had an introductory chapter, and then that left me 12 parables to choose from. And, uh, you know, I, I did leave some out that I wish I could have could have handled. Maybe that's a call for another uh, volume on this. But I think the 12 I chose are the most famous ones and and probably the most relevant to our times. Yes. Well, I enjoyed each one as I was uh, reading through your book. So how do you picture Jesus telling parables? Yeah, as I say, I, I, they didn't have television. They didn't have uh, Greek theater. Uh, so they didn't go out in these villages for entertainment at night. I picture him coming into villages. He had an itinerant ministry. Uh, and how do you get people to pay attention to you? Uh, they may come for a while and listen to just uh, preaching. For example, you might say, you ought to forgive people because God wants you to. Uh, Enough said. I mean, that's over quickly, and people might hear that for a while, and they'll get tired of that. So he comes in, and he becomes the entertainment of the village. They, They gather around in the village square, and, you know, this is exciting to have somebody telling stories. Um, we know that the Greek orators, when they told stories, they sometimes had little paintings for illustrations. They would actually, you know, like the old flannel graph or like we might use PowerPoint today, they <laughs> would have a small painting or two. 
And when the Greek orators spoke, they would use different voices. <clears throat> so they had you know, one voice for this guy, one voice for another character. Um, and as, as masterful as these parables are, I can't imagine Jesus not employing those things. So I don't know that he had little paintings for the prodigal son or used different voices, but I can imagine that he did a voice for the father, a voice for the the bad boy, a voice for the older son. You know, <laughs> I, I can imagine he had different voices. And I can, and again, I think that parable took him an hour or two. You can easily see how he would go into the details of all these things. We just get little details, but the, the details we have are just absolutely fascinating details. But I can imagine him taking an hour or two and the villagers just being mesmerized by the story. Because it's a story that happened a lot in the ancient world. You know, a bad boy running off. Uh, I mean, it happens today as well. A bad child, you know, a, a recalcitrant child running away and and uh, shaming the parents, disappointing the parents and scaring the parents. They don't know where the child is. Um, <clears throat> so it's something everybody could relate to. And and I can imagine how he told it. They were absolutely just, just enthralled with the story. Then they go home and think about it. <clears throat> Well, why do you tell that story? Because <clears throat> he knows somebody like that? No, the story has a point. Uh, mm. In the story, you know, the the uh, father is God. And and so that's uh, <clears throat> uh, that's how I picture it. Uh, I picture people just being enthralled. There's a reason that the church preserves 53 parables, because the the ancients, the ancient Christians found them just uh, absolutely not only entertaining, but just powerful stories. And they still are. They need some interpretation sometimes before we get the, the cultural uh, connection. But uh, they're still very entertaining stories. And so, I, I mean, even though they're abbreviated, in my opinion, <clears throat> the, the power still comes through in the, in the details and the change of scenery and so forth in these long stories. Um, so I, that's how I picture Jesus doing it. I think uh, he was a master not only at inventing the stories or maybe borrowing a story from some event that actually happened, but also in relating it and telling it. I think he was an absolute master storyteller. And that's his primary method of teaching. He uses other methods. He has he does have sermons. He does have, you know, sometimes some uh, proverbial say, statements. But his primary method of teaching was telling these stories. Mm. And there's a reason he did that. And there's a reason that the church preserved so many because he was really good at it. And mm. people, I think, were just mesmerized by these stories and, and enthralled. I think they would repeat them. They'd tell them to other people. Did you hear what I heard in our village, you know, the night before last? This guy just absolutely had a spellbound for two or three hours. <clears throat> I mean, then we went to bed and we couldn't stop thinking about the story. <clears throat> So that's how I picture uh, the parable uh, events taking place. Yes, you know, I think so often and what we're discussing this month is just about the gifts that God gives us, you know, through his word that we often neglect because it's not coming alive to us because we're not being diligent 
to seek to study it more. So I, I love how you uh, study these parables. I think it's in such a fresh new way. Uh, and in your book, you know, in Matthew 25, 20 through 21, it says, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more saying, master, you deliver me to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This parable is an example of God's generosity toward us. He gives talents to us, gifts to us. But will we prove faithful with what he has given? I think we can miss this because we often pursue gifts so we're comfortable, but miss the point of the gifts. So David, you talk about this parable in your book. What do you think we need to hear from this story today? Yeah, I think it's a great parable for the church in any age. Uh, so a talent, excuse me, a talent is a weight. Um, and so it's equal to one talent, equal to 6,000 silver denarii. It's an enormous amount of money. So when he gave the guy five talents, he's giving him 30,000 silver denarii. That's a fortune. Uh, but the talent in the parable represents God's gifts to each person, <clears throat> their, their abilities, their time. Uh, it, could be, it could be their money uh, that God has given them. It could, it could be uh, one of a number of things. But God gives us all certain advantages and abilities, and he means for us to use them. That's the point. You don't own the talents. God Amen. gives them to you to use. And I, I tell people when I preach on this, because I, 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 I normally preach in the United States, I say, just being born or living in this country is, you know, is an enormous advantage. Uh, we have relative abundance, you know, people that are just living an average middle-class life are enormously wealthy to many other people on the planet. With these advantages goes a responsibility. Mm. We don't just uh, take these gifts and go our merry way and say, well, that's great. I was lucky to be born here. Too bad you weren't. No, with mm. gifts comes responsibility. I, I can't just live in this country in freedom and in, in financial ease and not think about poor people and, and starving little kids around the world and, and others who are suffering uh, tyranny and suffering violence and so forth. So <clears throat> we all have to do something. It might be modest, it might be humble, but we have to do something. So in there, I tell a story about a, a guy who, he was a maintenance worker at Motel 6. Now, Motel 6 doesn't charge a lot of money for their rooms. That's no secret. So they can't have paid him a lot of money. He can't be making a big salary. But there was a, a tweet um, about this guy. They don't even know his name. But he discovered that there was a homeless family, uh, you know, somehow making a, a paying for a room in Motel 6 for a couple of nights just to get out of the cold. And this maintenance man brought from his house two or three grocery sacks full of food. Now, he can't have had much food himself for his family, but he shared what he had. So the tweet was saying, whoever that guy was, God bless you. You did a, a great thing for people that are really, really down and out. And we know you don't have much yourself if you work there, but you shared what you So we can do something. 
Um, why should yes. a guy like that, you know, do something? And he should. And we who are more prosperous do almost nothing. We just go our merry way and are oblivious to the suffering of humanity. So that's the first lesson. You got to get out and do something. The second lesson is uh, we're not all going to be five talent people. I mean, there are some that God has given enormous gifts to. Some people he's he's enabled to make money hand over fist. There are people who can make a million dollars today and not even blink an eye. They just have that, that ability, right? Mm. The people that just have enormous like uh, musical talents or acting ability or athletic ability, they just have it. Um, and uh, But most of us are not five talent people. We're two talent people. Right. We we have average abilities, but we do have some. But what impresses me about this parable is when Jesus addresses the two talent person, he says the same thing to him as he said to the five talent. He said to the five talent, well done, you good and faithful servant to the two talent. He didn't say, well, it's not too bad. You average mediocre person. He said the exact same words to this guy. Well done, you good and faithful God doesn't expect me to be able to sing like an opera singer or slam dunk a basketball or be able to play center field for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He expects me to do what I can. And the words will be there for you and me as well if we do what we can with our two talents. Even the one talent guy would have been okay if he had just done something. But the one talent guy did nothing. He just went his own way. Eh, I'm not going to get involved. I just bury it, bring it out. I didn't lose it. Um, so mm. two lessons, you got to get out and do something, do something for somebody with whatever God has given you. And secondly, don't worry if you don't measure up to somebody else's abilities. There's always somebody yes. who sings better, who plays ball better than you, who's better looking than you, or who can make more money than you. There's always somebody out there better. Don't worry about it. Just be what you are. And God will say to you, well done. You know, that is such a needed message today because we can spend so much energy focused on self and our lack that we don't realize God wants us to give back. He wants us to continue to use the gifts he's placed in us and and to not compare. Comparison, uh, I believe it was Teddy Roosevelt said, is the thief of joy. And I, I also think it robs us of the calling God has on our life if we think we have to look a certain way to be used by Him. Absolutely. So, You're yeah, right. thank you for sharing that. So, what is it that we need to hear in the parable of the prodigal son? Yeah, that's, that's the most amazing parable of the Bible. I think it's the clearest look at the character of God. So in the in the story, of course, uh, in case some of our hearers are not uh, familiar or maybe have forgotten some of the details, in the story, there is a wealthy landowner who has two sons, and the younger son, who I surmise must have been a teenager because they married their kids off in their teenage years. Uh, the the boys by eighteen, the girls by about thirteen. So I'm I'm guessing he's around fifteen years old. And like a lot of young men back then, he he was feeling kind of confined on the farm, on the plantation. He wanted to get out and see the world. So he tells his father, I want my inheritance now, which is a huge insult. It, in mm-hmm. the East, that means 
old man, I wish you'd die now so I could get my inheritance, but just give it to me. So it's very hurtful to the father, extremely, extremely hurtful. But the father gives it to him. He he divides up his large estate, his big plantation. And of course, the younger son would get one third, the older son two thirds of the of the estate in the inheritance, according to the Old Testament law. So he takes his one third, which would have been still a considerable. He sells it to somebody, which again they don't didn't do that. Takes the money, takes the silver denarii in a big bag, and he goes off to what they call a far country. It would have been a a pagan or Gentile city. Uh, and there's some many of them that sort of ring uh, Galilee and Judea in the first century. So every every Jewish person in Galilee hearing the story, oh, I think, I think I know where he went. So they they would have in mind that one of these pagan cities that were kind of ringing around Palestine. So he goes off there and he just spends the money. That's where we get the word prodigal because he just throws the money away. I mean, he just spends it on, he probably gambling. We find out later he spent it on prostitutes. He's probably, you know, buying the drinks uh, in the neighborhood pub for all his buddies. And pretty soon he's gone through the entire amount of money, which is hard to imagine, but we don't know how long he's gone, months or years. And that coincides with one of the uh, things that happen often in Palestine, and that's a famine. Sometimes they would have drought years and it would be a really hard time. So it's a famine and he can't, doesn't have any money, has no friends anymore. <laughs> the only job he's getting is slopping the hogs. Uh, and he realized he's sunk to a pretty low level. So he wants to go home. He rehearses a little speech. Uh, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I, I know I'm not worthy to be, you won't take me back as a son. I know that, but can you just make me one of your day worker? You know, pay me a daily wage. I'll work for minimum wage. So he, he has that speech and I picture him rehearsing that over and over as he's marching home. It takes him days and days, maybe weeks to get home and he's practicing. And so he, still a far way off and his father spies him coming. At first he thinks it can't be him. This guy is, he's shabby, he's dirty. That can't be my son. But then he realized that is my son and he runs the father runs to the son, embraces him. The son starts with a speech, but the father doesn't let him finish it. He tells him, we're going to throw a banquet. My son's going to. So in the parable, you see the father represents God. Uh, and what amazes me is he gives this bratty kid everything he wants. With God, you get what you want. He doesn't make anybody become a mm. believer or a follower. You get what you want. He lets him go off, but he also never gives up on him. And the minute the son starts back, the father is there to embrace him. So he he forgives the son immediately. Now, in this culture, the proper response would be for the father to beat the daylights out of him. Take a, take a stick and just beat him over the head and say, come back in two or three years and I might forgive you. The villagers might even try to kill him because he has shamed everybody. His behavior is absolutely shameful. But the father embraces him. He kisses uh, this smelly boy, wants mm -hmm. to put on a, a new robe and new shoes and even a ring on his finger like he's royalty. This is the God uh, who he lets him go off. But when he comes back, it's a celebration like you have never imagined. That's the clearest picture of God that Jesus can give us. What's what he wanted to think about God, the father, God, the Abba. 
God the Father who is loving us so much, the minute we make a move toward him, he's there to embrace it. It's a powerful story. Yes. Uh, I mean, the kid's a brat. All the villagers think, if I had my way, I'd stone him. I'd at least beat him up. But the father just forgives him, and he's overjoyed. He throws him a party, uh, and he takes him back. Hmm. That's uh, that's the power. that it, That's why, I mean, this story has been a church favorite for 2,000 years. You can see why. That's who God is as Jesus teaches it. Yes. Yeah. And we just see this incredible grace that's available to us all. You know, I think it can be easy to say, oh, well, I'm not the prodigal because I didn't do that. (laughs) But we all fall short. And it's such a picture of the grace of God that accepts us and loves us. Anyway, it's it's a great gift to unwrap these parables and view them in a fresh new way. One of the parables that has meant a lot to me is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. In a world that tries to level the field so there's no competition and it screams out, not fair, this parable can really rub us the wrong way. What do we need to hear in this parable? Yeah, that God is not fair. Uh, <laughs> grace Grace is not fairness at all. Right. Uh, if you if you demand fairness, you're asking God to be other than what he is. Mm. I mean, the God who embraced the prodigal boy, the bratty kid, is not fair. Uh, and that's why the older brother in the parable complains. Hey, that's not fair to me. I didn't leave. You didn't give me a party. Uh, mm. Don't expect fairness from God. Expect grace and love. That's who God is. Well, so in the... Parable of the Vineyard, uh, people, uh, day laborers, uh, people who work for a daily wage, or we might say a minimum wage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they stand in the village square, and as the landowners need labor, they come and hire them. And during the grape harvesting season, they need a lot of workers. They need to pick the grapes quickly, or they will spoil. So they're hiring people right and left. And so they come out early in the day at at dawn, and they hire a group of people. He comes out again, hires some more, and he comes out an hour before quitting time and hires some people because he needs these laborers. So when it comes time to pay up, he gives everybody the same wage. And those that worked all day say, well, that's not fair to us. You're paying us what you paid the guy who worked one hour. And the vineyard owner says, hey, it's my money. If I want to be generous, I can. And again, the the, the owner of the land uh, stands for God, and God is saying, if I want to be generous, that is gracious, I will be. And that's what I am. I am a gracious, generous God. So it's hard for everybody. It's hard for Christians as well. Um, and, and their sense of justice mm. to understand and comprehend grace. We, we we hear about people doing bad things and we say oh, they're going to get theirs you know, and they should you know we we, we <laughs> want we we have this inner drive for justice and it's it's a god-given moral trait you know to want justice so that's not a bad thing but grace trumps and triumphs over justice yeah well, I, I remember when chuck colson for example became a christian or or maybe he had been a Christian in the past, and he revived his faith. I don't know about, but he was uh, Nixon, Richard Nixon, President Nixon's hatchet man, and he was involved in a lot of illegal and unethical things. 
he was considered a very mean person. Mm. Um, a lot of people despised him and what he did. So <clears throat> before he goes off to prison, he announces he has been born again. He's a born again Christian. Well, there were people that just would not accept that. They hated him so much. Mm. And fast forward to his passing, which was a few years ago. I'm, I think maybe 2014, but I'm not, I, I don't recall exactly. Uh, when he died, the, the venom that came out from people uh, who let their hatred and their anger spew forth, they still hadn't forgiven him, even though he had been involved in ministry for like 30 years or, or even more. Uh, he'd done many, many good things as a prison minister. They did not forgive him. Uh, mm. Well, that's, you know, if you're not a Christian, I guess I can kind of understand that, being that petty. But if you're a Christian and you feel that way, uh, you, you really need to rethink your Christian faith because grace is what the Christian faith is all about. If you can't accept grace, I'm not sure you can accept what it means to be a Christian. Of course, he received forgiveness and grace. Of course, he did. Uh, and he did many, many good things. And uh, to to fest, let that hatred and anger fester and to harbor that grudge over this year, that's not a Christian attitude. Anyway, that's one example. I, I just remember how people commented at his passing. They didn't. There were, I mean, there were many compliments by on the part of his ministerial colleagues, but there were other people that were just nasty and mean. Mm. Uh, that's not the way God is. He's not nasty. Mm -hmm. He's generous. He's gracious. He's loving. And he loves it when somebody repents and comes to him. So that's a parable of interest. It's a fantastic parable. I remember when I, I was teaching a Sunday school class. So you mentioned I was in a pastoral ministry for a while. Uh, and you, you learn a lot of things in pastoral ministry that you don't learn from studying books or from even reading the New Testament in the original language or the Old Testament in the original language. You learn a lot in pastoral ministry about uh, the ultimate meaning of Scripture. So I remember um, a just a horrible guy. He'd done horrible things. And it was announced that he'd become a Christian in prison. I mean, he was sentenced to like 40 mm -hmm. life, 40 life sentences for uh, his horrible crimes. It was announced he had become a Christian in prison, and I announced it in my Sunday school class that Sunday, and many in the class would not accept it. One guy said, if that man goes to heaven, I don't want to be there. Well, that's just not the way God thinks about it. Oh, that. wow. Yeah. That's, that's what the parable of the vineyard is all about. There were people in Jesus' day the same way. They, were, they would not give people another chance. They would not accept that they could repent and turn their life around and live for God. If you can't go with grace, you don't understand the Christian life and the Christian faith and Christian theology. Grace is at the heart of what we are. Yes. And in today's culture, people get so easily offended and lose sight of the gift of forgiveness that God has given them. And it's it's like we can't apply the grace that's been given to us. And uh, the parables are such a great way, I think, of opening up minds to understand. I, I, we just were myopic. We don't see what we're doing sometimes. And parables have a way of gently letting us know you're missing the mark here. Well, David, you've really opened our eyes and ears to understand the parables. And I look forward to unpacking some more parables from your book next week. Final question. How do you hope readers will use this book? 
Yes. So I, as I wrote the book, I had in my mind, I was visualizing groups of people studying them. I think you can use the book as an individual, but if you study the parables in a group, I think it works better. Uh, so I envisioned them reading the parable itself two or three times, maybe two different translations of the parable. Um, and I know in a group, not everybody will have read the chapter. So somebody would summarize the chapter for them. Then they would come to the four discussion questions. And I hope those discussion questions would help each person think about and apply. I hope the discussion questions help each person have that aha moment. Ah, This is how it specifically applies to me. I have this uncle who, you know, he did something bad. He went to prison for a couple of years and the family can't forgive me. But now I realize I should. You know, So I hope each one can have some application like that. Then there's a fourth section that's um, it's optional. Uh, it gives uh, historical uh, information to show how I came about my interpretation. You can read it if you want. Um, I'm a teacher and a history buff, so I love that stuff. Some some readers will like it. Some will say it's a bother. If it's a bother, it's optional. You can just move on. <laughs> uh, but it, it shows uh, how I, you know, the, the methods I use to clarify for them and apply for them the parable. So four, four steps in studying uh, the par- each parable. Uh, but the, the discussion questions, I think, are really important. So I hope uh, the readers can form a group and study this book uh, as a group. But if you have to do it by yourself, I think you can. It's perfectly usable. You can think about the discussion questions on your own. Uh, yes. Well, I know I love to nerd out on all things Bible. I, I'm currently seeking my uh, PhD in biblical exposition at Liberty. And so I I love just hearing you talk about this. And so I'm looking to even diving deeper myself. Um, so David, yes, thank you. So David, how can people contact you? Uh, so they can go to my website, davidafennessy.com. And there it gives my email address and my phone number. Be glad to answer any questions. Anybody, so if you've read the book, you say, I had a question about this page. I I am more than happy to answer those questions. Awesome. Um, so it, it, spell out my last name is probably a problem. Uh, so it's David A. My last name is F-I-E-N-S-Y. Uh, Perfect. I'll have the link for that as well. And, okay. you know, if, if you're listening today, maybe sometimes you hear the parables and you just think, how does this relate to me in my life right now? The beauty of God's word is that it was written to specific people at a specific time, and yet we can apply it to our lives today. And so David in this book is giving us a way to apply it to our context today. So I hope that you'll be able to get that book. And next week, we will be discussing it as well. You've been listening to the Seeing Deep podcast, where we dive into the Word of God for the answers to life's problems. (laughs) 